0: Thank you, Tim, for that prayer of supplication. Thank you all for being here this morning and your willingness to be a part of gathering around God's Word. I ask that you take your copy of God's Word and find your way back to John, 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, where we'll pick up where we left off in the previous message on this particular text. In 1 John chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 5. John is the last remaining of god uh, of jesus's original disciples uh he's owned up in age Uh, all the other disciples have been martyred by this time and this is somewhere around 90 a.d and uh, of course john has spent time on the island of patmos as as an exile Uh, he's back in the area of ephesus where he's pastoring uh, church there and churches in the region trying to influence those early believers and try to keep the church uh, on solid footing of of biblical doctrine. And so as we pick up in chapter 1 of 1 John verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us chapter 2 verse 1 my little children these things i write to you that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous and he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for also for the whole world hans christian anderson wrote a fable many years ago, entitled The Emperor's New Clothes. Some of you probably heard it. There was, many years ago, so to say, there was a very vain and very prideful king who had a deep love for clothes. His wardrobe was quite extensive. In fact, he had an army of tailors. They were given the directive of coming up with a new outfit for the king every day. And he would proudly would great vanity display that outfit as he marched through the streets to show off his new outfit each and every day. And the people keenly warned if they wanted to keep their heads. No matter how the outfit looked on the king, they were to cheer wildly with great approval. And the king strutted up and down the streets and showed off his new outfit. This went on day after day, week after week, year after year. Finally, the tailors, his tailors, ran out of new ideas. So you know what happened then? They found themselves in the unemployment line. He ran them out of the town, out of the country. He hired him some new tailors. And it just so happened which this decision made him very prime, a very prime target for a couple of swindlers who came into town and passed themselves off as expert tailors from a far and distant country. They possessed not only great skills, but they also possessed a very rare type of silk and a unique ability to to weave this silk in a pattern that was so tight that even the wearer couldn't see it. But, But those who would see it under the light of the sun would be dazzled by the unusual color and the pattern. And so it intrigued the king, and he hired them at a great expense to weave him this special outfit. And he would go up to check on them through the day. They'd be up there pretending like they were weaving. And they'd be holding up, you know, supposed fabric. And they would be making over the pattern and the the colors. And said, oh, king, this is gorgeous. And he said, I can't see it. But they said, oh, the wearer can't see it. That's the unique thing about this silk. But oh, you wait till your people see it. Oh, king, you will be the talk of dynasties and kingdoms all around. And so they kept up with this shenanigan for hours on end and into the night finally the next day came the king couldn't wait made his way up to the tailor shop and there the two men were putting the finishing touches clipping and snipping and what have you and they helped the king very delicately put on this just air light uh clothing first with his trousers helped them to get them suited on Then they put his cloak on and and his cape and they were standing back and said, oh, king, you will dazzle the kingdom today. And of course, the king fell for all of this. So finally, the the procession starts. The the band is struck up and the the, the procession of singers goes before the king and all the people are lining the streets and, and the king comes out and he's, well, in his birthday suit. But all the people All the people because they know the vanity of their king and the pride of the king. Oh, they're cheering and they're wildly excited as their king struts down the street in his birthday suit. (laughs) Naked as a jaybird. As far as he turns one corner, someone forgot to tell a particular little child. And in the innocence of their little heart, that child just blurts out, Hey, our king is naked. And with that, the people couldn't contain themselves any longer. They put up with this shenanigan all along and they burst out laughing. Everybody, everybody just started laughing. And the king began to blush as he realized. Of course, the swindlers had taken the gold and gotten out of town. And the king found himself the object of a great ruse and certainly the embarrassment, not only of his kingdom, but all the kingdoms around. And they say from that time on, he wouldn't even come out in public when it didn't matter. He just was so embarrassed. Well, what the Apostle Paul is writing in this portion of 1 John, in the text that we've looked at, is not a humorous tale. In fact, as we get into the text this morning, you'll see that there's tragic reality that confronted the early church, centered around false teachers. We spoke of as we introduced the the book of 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. It's a a tragic reality that not only confronted the church then, in the first century A.D., but it's a tragic reality that continues to confront the church today. You see, the aged apostle John, getting on up in age, passionately confronts the false teachings of arrogant heretics who are parading into the early church, with their diabolical false claims about Christ, about God, about sin, and about righteousness. They're blinded by the false philosophies that have penetrated their minds and hearts and they're buying into this and they're trying to woo other Christians in that direction and this alarms John. You say, how could such a thing happen? How could people be so blinded? You know, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul sheds light on that. No pun intended. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 4, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God, little g, of this age, speaking of Satan, have blinded, Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge Of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul bluntly says there are people who are absolutely blinded by Satan. And they have not seen the truth. They cannot see the truth. And they will mislead others with their dark and sinful false teachings. John upholds in contrast to the practices and the beliefs of those heretical So-called Christians, and you'll find out they were not Christians at all. Just like some of the cults that we have today. Just like some of the churches we have today that are sold out to liberal theology. John holds up what authentic Christians look like. Sometimes that's the best way to pick out a counterfeiter or counterfeit is to know the original. Know what the real deal really looks like. So much so that you can pick out the false. The false. One of the first things that John points out about in holding up true believers in contrast to those false believers, those who were a part of the Gnostics, who believed that, that it was more than just faith, that it, there was this right knowledge that you had to, to achieve. And, and through right knowledge, you would be, uh, achieve this level of enlightenment and, and once you rose to that level of enlightenment, the Gnostics said, then, then you have arrived. And they had a false system of teaching that was absolutely against the teaching of the Bible. John says, number one, true believers readily recognize their sins. True believers readily recognize their sins. That's interesting because we just talked about there in Second Corinthians, Paul was describing those who are blinded and walking in darkness. Throughout the scriptures, you find the symbolism of light and dark. As we were reading there in 1 John, beginning in in verse 5, you saw John using terms related to light and darkness. That's not unusual because if you're familiar with John's gospel, in chapter 1 of John's gospel, listen to the language. Beginning in verse 4 of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, in him, speaking of Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. He goes on in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, that would be John the Baptist, this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, and in my scripture it's capitalized, symbolizing Christ, that all through him might believe. He, speaking of John, was not the light, that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So you see the symbolism of light and darkness in John's gospel, but also in John's epistle. But it's not unusual throughout the scripture, you find that. Commentators tell us that the symbolism of light and darkness are used in a couple of ways. First, it can be used in an intellectual application, but then when we talk about light and darkness, it can be used in a moral application. For instance, as an intellectual application, light would symbolize biblical truth, but darkness would symbolize error and falsehood, like Heresy, like the Gnostics. In a moral application, light would represent holiness and purity. Whereas darkness, on the other hand, would represent sin and evil. So that you understand how John is using this symbolism here in 1 John chapter 1, and he will throughout the remainder of his epistle. But we know that from the scripture, the holiness and the glory of God is described to us and symbolized to us as light. God's holiness, if you think about, it, even in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, as God is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, He manifests Himself, it says, at night, as a pillar of fire. His brilliance, His light, in that in that wonderful vision of Isaiah, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, as, as the pastoral team was preaching, uh, as they introduced that, that book, and, and in chapter 6, when Isaiah is in the presence, in that vision, in the presence of the holiness of God, where these majestic, powerful, mystical seraphim are saying, holy, 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 much like the song that we sang together at the beginning of the service. And and Isaiah realizes in the brilliance of the Shekinah glory, of the glorious holiness of God, he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. So so you see the brilliance of the light of God's holiness. You know, I think it's also interesting that James wrote, and this is a half-brother of Jesus, not John's brother, But James in his short epistle there, listen to how he describes the holiness of God in chapter 1, verse 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. You see what James is saying? Don't even think about trying to associate sin and darkness with the light of the brilliance of the holiness of God. He goes on in that chapter in verse 17 and says every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Ladies and gentlemen, do you think anywhere on the massive surface of the great star we call the sun? Do you think anywhere on the surface of that massive ball of fire that you could find one place where there's a shadow? I think not. I think not. The fact is, you wouldn't get close enough to even find. But against the source of light, there's no shadow. Against the holiness of God, there is no shadow. James says there's no semblance of a shadow. There's no semblance of darkness. Don't you dare try to associate the darkness of sin with God. He is holy. Christ followers. We like to be drawn to the light. The Word, as Psalm 119 tells us in verse 105 and 106. Thy thy Word is a lamp unto my feet. Is a light into my path. I've sworn and confirmed that I will uphold your righteous judgment. God's light. God's Word is a light. And as long as we have the Word of God, it constantly sheds light. Not only upon that, surra- that which surrounds us, the world around us, but ladies and gentlemen, you know too, and I do, from personal experience, in my prayer closet, in my devotion time, when I open up the Word of Light, it's like a beacon that shines, guess where? At Charlie Martin. And it will surely reveal any sin in my life. Jesus said to those who were following Him in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 31, He says, if you continue in My Word, He says, then surely you are My disciples. And if you continue in My words and you are My disciple, then He says, you will know the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So the holiness of God represented in his character and also represented in his uh, word, the character of God, the word of God is symbolized. He is light. Sin, on the other hand, is cast in as a symbol of darkness. We think of sin as dark. We think of evil as dark. I recently finally got to go see the latest episode of the Star Wars movie. And I know we got maybe a few Star Wars fans. But, you know, they, they portray that, that, that uh, uh, contrast in presence of good and evil as light and, and, and darkness and Darth Vader and that type of thing. But darkness usually symbolizes spiritual error. It, it usually symbolizes falsehood and sin and evil. And all that we think about the darkness, we think about the devil and we think about demons and we think about darkness and the Bible casts that. And you see, false believers reject biblical truth. Rationalizing, and these false believers that invaded the church there where John is and, and the early church in the first century, these, these false believers these heretics, if you will, were rationalizing and justifying their sinful lives, reasoning that there was a separation between the spirit and the body. Anything material, such as our bodies, they said, was evil, and therefore not associated with our spirit. They thought, well, once you reach the level of spiritual enlightenment, that you know that you, you were a spiritual being and anything you did in your body really didn't matter. Because you were a spiritual being. You had been enlightened. You had been lifted above. So, so as, as a, an enlightened one, so the Gnostics said, it didn't matter if you were engaged in sin and, and, and immorality. Because the main thing is that your, your spirit was pure before God. And John is, and so they were separating the physical from the spiritual as if to give Christians a license to go out there and participate in sin and not be worried about it. And John is countering that with the truth. And you know, down through the ages, down through the ages, there have been movements seeking to do that very thing. And you know how they try to do it? They attack the authenticity and the inerrancy of the Word of God. That's how we get cults that have infiltrated our our culture today. False beliefs, false religions. Because if, if you can undermine the truthfulness of the Word of God, you can cause doubt in people's minds. And you can cause them to abandon godly standards that God has set forth in His Word. And John is writing to counter such teachings. We have liberal theology that has invaded churches all across this country, ladies and gentlemen. We have moral relativism that has infiltrated the churches of today, the 21st century, teaching that what might be right for you might not be right for me, or what may be wrong for you may not be wrong for me. And therefore, everybody determines for themselves what they think is right and wrong. The Bible, if it's not absolutely true, then there are probably are exceptions that we can make in the modern enlightened era in which we live. And so these liberal preachers and liberal pulpits and liberal churches that have bought into moral relativism, you see how it's easy for them to begin to, to rationalize sins like homosexuality and abortion and sexual immorality, adultery and fornication. Oh Yeah. And John comes back and he counters that strongly, such as in verse 6 there, 1 John. He says, If we, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, which the Gnostics did, they say, Oh, yeah, we're God's children. <laughs> we're fellowshipping with God. But John says, if, if you say you have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You're living a lie, he says. You're ignoring the sin that is a part of your life. You can't have fellowship with God and live in sin, John is saying. In verse 8, he goes on to say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, the Gnostics and and other heretical groups that come into the church were saying, you know, oh, it doesn't matter what we do in our body. The main thing is that we have the right knowledge of God. And we've connected with God intellectually. So we, we're, we're super saints, if you will. Oh, well, It doesn't matter what we do the rest of the week, as long as we engage with God in our spirit. And John is saying, baloney! And in the Greek, baloney means baloney. <laughs> Verse 10, you can, you can sense this aging and yet passionate disciple of Jesus Christ. He he knows what the Lord taught firsthand. That's why he started out in verse 5. This is a message which we heard from him. John says I didn't get this second hand. I didn't read this from a publication from Rome. He says I heard from the lips of the son of God. The things that I'm telling you and writing but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verse 10 he says if we say that that we have not sinned, and there were those that were going around and says, "Oh yeah, I, I've never sinned. <laughs> Y'all have any perfect family members in your family tree? You know, that just somehow had this notion that, oh yeah, I, I've never sinned. You know, I'm a good person." And I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness." And John says, "If you say, if you say we have not sinned, we make who?" Him a liar. Now you're calling God a liar. If you says, I, "I've never sinned, I've been a good person, then John's thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you going to do with Brother Paul's inspired writings that in Romans chapter three verse 10 said, "There's none-righteous, not one. <laughs> talking about all of humanity. And he says in Romans 3:23, "For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." every precious little baby no offense little James born into this world looking as innocent as they could possibly be pure as the driven snow is a sinner born under the curse of sin Paul says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and you best listen to chapter 6 verse 23 when he goes on and says and the penalty of sin if not repented is eternal separation from God in an existence of absolute torment and anguish and agony for which there's no relief forever and ever and ever. And John knows that. He says, you're making my God out to look like a liar when you make such bold, false, heretical claims. Oh, no, no, no. Real, true believers of Jesus Christ recognize our sins. You notice I use plural. Plural. Because most of us commit more than one. And yes, John is writing to Christians. This epistle is written to the church, churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus in particular. He's writing to Christians. Realizing that even the best of us, with the most uh, determination and, and the best of intentions, we're still going to disappoint God. Could I get an amen there? Some of y'all haven't bought that just yet, but I'll get one later, okay? Your head to think about that, one, right? Oh, is the preacher setting me up? I better not amen too fast. True believers not only recognize our sins, John says, but true believers regularly confess their sins. Confess their sins. You know what that fancy word confession means? It means simply to agree with God about sin. See it like God sees it, call it like God calls it. And understand that if God, through His Word, by His Spirit, points to your heart and some area of your heart, and He says, you are out of my will, you better say, you're right, God. You're absolutely right. Confession is simply agreeing with God about the presence of sin. Confession of sin is the path to divine forgiveness There's no other way to experience the forgiveness of God as as a believer. If you want to have fellowship with God and walk closely with Him, then listen, you need to come to come to grips with this need for confession. Unlike the false believers that had infiltrated the church, Christians, John says, admit their sins openly to God. Let me ask you. Are there any sinful acts or relationships or habits in your life that God sees, he knows, and yet you have hesitated in agreeing with God about it? You stop short of confessing it to God? Oh listen, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand Unconfessed sin, unrepented sin is a barrier in your prayer life. Did you know that? You can't really have a meaningful prayer life, an effective prayer life and communicate with God when you know good and well there are things, habits, practices, relationships, thoughts in your life that you have not Agreed with God about. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 16 18. He says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. And in all fairness, ladies and gentlemen, why should the holy God of the universe, who sent his only son to die on an agonizing cross to pay the price for the penalty of our sins, why should he listen to me? Why should he listen to you? When you're sitting on top of a sack of unconfessed sins that somehow you think will cost you too much if you come clean with God. Listen, it doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter the psychology or or, or, or the philosophies of this modern world around us. You'll get bombarded with all kinds of weird, unbiblical notions that will somehow try to make you feel comfortable You better listen to what God says. God hates sin. He doesn't hate sinners. Aren't you glad? (laughs) But He sure hates sin. Our ongoing confession is met with divine faithfulness. John says right there in verse 9. If we confess our sins, hallelujah, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, Paul said, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, among the wonderful attributes of God, his holiness and his righteousness and his power and his omniscience and omnipresence and his eternal, immutable nature and his sovereignty and all. Listen, God is faithful. Amen? Oh, he is faithful I love that Old Testament passage in Lamentations 3.22 where the writer reminds us because of God's faithful love we do not perish. His mercies never end. Aren't you glad? His mercies never end. They are new morning by morning. Great is your faithfulness love it when we sing that song that majestic hymn proclaiming to the glory of god almighty great is your faithfulness morning by morning your mercies are new i don't know about you i'm glad about that i'm absolutely elated that God is faithful and His mercies never end. And when old Charlie Martin comes dragging in with his old sorry self, having disappointed and di- you know and disappointed and disobeyed God, and, and I look up towards heaven, you know, kind of with a sheepish look up towards God, I'm so glad that my heavenly Father's not standing up there looking down at me with shame in His eyes and with His arms crossed and says, "Uh-huh, I knew it. Too bad. I'm out of mercy. Come back tomorrow." If you live that long. Oh no. No. Every time I come before the Lord. And then John says in John chapter 1 verse 9. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins. He is faithful. He is just. And he will forgive us of what? Some of our sins? The worst of our sins? Huh? All of our sins. And cleanse us of how much of our unrighteousness? All of our unrighteousness. Forgiveness of sin is a path to divine forgiveness. But forgiveness of sin paves the way to Christian fellowship. Fellowship is so important. To be in a right relationship to fellowship. And the power of Christ's blood ensures our fellowship with God. Look there in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He the Lord is in the light. You see, aren't you glad that John didn't say if we walk according to the light, in other words, we got we to follow a long list of legal requirements to just get the light. <laughs> Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so glad that we don't have a God that holds us to these unrealistic standards of of legalism and say, now, Charlie, when you can get rule number 6442, that's the only one, then you'll turn on the light, brother. No, no, no. The minute that I came to realize that I was a wretched sinner caught up in the kingdom of darkness, I was a slave of the devil and I was hopelessly lost and separated from God and I heard the call of the Spirit of God. Ruined me by the grace of God towards Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And I came to my senses and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I repented of my sins and I placed my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. All the light bulbs of heaven went on. No longer was I hiding in some decrepit, demonic cave in shackles to the devil, I was liberated and brought into the family of God and made to have fellowship with the God of the universe. And He called me, Son. Whew. John says, because we're in that light, he says, walk in it every day. And when you walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship With one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ. His son. Cleanses us from all sin. That's not a past tense. Yes indeed. When Jesus died on the cross. And and he shed his innocent atoning blood. It did. It did. It paid the price of the sins of all who would truly put their faith in Him. Past tense. But let me tell you something. The power of the blood, the cleansing of the blood is being applied to every confession made today. Every time you come to Christ and you confess a sin, He applies the blood to you. It's through the blood of Jesus. What a wonderful thing. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. He's talking about the faithfulness of our great high priest. And we're instructed to come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. Have you ever had a time of need? (laughs) Let me tell you something. When you know you're out of the will of God. And you know he's disappointed with you. And you know that you stand to, to bear the consequences of sin. Listen that's a time of need. And you come to Him. And, and so He says, when you come, come boldly. Don't come sheepishly. Don't come with second guessing in your mind. Don't come wondering if God... No, He said, come boldly before the throne of God. You have, or you have deserved the privilege or you have won the privilege through what Jesus did. Because He goes on to say that there we will find obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. Man, imagine such fellowship back in verse three of first john chapter one prior to the text that we're looking at today listen to what john says verse three that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ do you see the circle of fellowship Salvation brings us not only into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, but we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, our our Savior. He's our Lord, as we sang so in a beautiful hymn, He's our friend, He calls us friend. We have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, but then He unites us in fellowship with every other true believer. I love our tradition of ending up the service after we've observed the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and we try we got to get some more folks in here, folks, because we need to be able to circle the sanctuary, okay? So y'all get busy inviting your family who are not actively in church and, and you know, do like the angels. Pack a cue, okay? Take a cue from Marjorie. But let's, let's fill the sanctuary up with people who love the Lord and are eager to learn about Jesus and to grow in Christ. And, and we'll be able to circle the sanctuary hand in hand and we'll be able to say, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. That's what John is saying. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. But here's the exciting thing. It's kind of like the price is right, you know? <laughs> oh, let's make a deal. Just when you won what you thought was a good price, and they said, now behind curtain number two, you know? And, you, and there's a brand new, you know, Porsche. And people act like they're having a heart attack. And, you know, and... <laughs> So just when we think, we, you know, it's the best it can be, God is saying, listen, you want, yeah, first, curtain number one, you get fellowship with Jesus Christ. Curtain number two, you have fellowship with God the Father. Curtain number three, you have fellowship with all the true believers that are in your local church. But don't, no, we're not done. Behind curtain number four in that big box, you're going to have fellowship with every true believer across the land. That's a wonderful thing. To get outside of the walls of this church, all of those, this is my number one love, churches. But it's a wonderful thing to just go to other gatherings where other believers from other churches went to the missions rally Thursday night and there were Christians from all over the triad and beyond, you know, from churches all over. and, And you just thought it was a family reunion. You know, you just feel that kindred spirit and you're having fellowship and you're enjoying seeing each other. And and, and it's that way always. When we go on the mission field, we go to another country. Brothers and sisters over there in in Kenya, Africa. You know, we speak in English, they're speaking Swahili, and their culture is very different from ours. But you know, when we discover our love for the Lord, we're linked and bonded. We have fellowship. i got to move along. What a wonderful thing. True believers not only recognize our sins and true believers not only in contrast to the false, heretical so-called believers, false believers. We we confess our sins regularly. But true believers receive full pardon for sin. Full pardon. You know, occasionally you'll hear about a prisoner in prison. That's a no-brainer. And they'll receive a pardon from the governor. Sometimes I question some of those pardons, but that's his authority. He can make a phone call to death row and say, I'm going to pardon so-and-so. And And just like that. They're free as a bird. Full pardon. Let me me just clarify again. John here, and we're looking at chapter 2, verse 1. John is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to lost people about being saved. But he's writing to Christians who are already saved. And they're asking God to forgive them of their sins. So that they can not become a part of the kingdom of God. But that they can improve their walk in the kingdom of God. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about sanctification. So if we really want to be in close fellowship with the Lord and receive the full blessings of a walk with the Lord, then we need to make sure that we stay prayed up, confessed up. But when we do, we are being made more into the image of Christ. We become more like Him. Nothing makes us look more like our Savior than we we deal with sin in our life. True believers never face their sins alone look at chapter 2 verse 1 but look john says my little children don't y'all love that come here. It's a, you' it's know, like a grandparent you know grandmother we got some in here grandmas and granddads. you know don't you just love it and those little darlings you know come, come here sweetie come, come here to granddaddy you know let me put my teeth in and i'll kiss you you know and you know, come on over here sweet set on my you know come little children you know and of course after they've been with you about two weeks you're saying, hey. Is your mother not here yet? (laughs) John is saying with with, with affection. He's an elderly apostle. And he sees these, not just as church members, he sees them as little children. Seven times in this particular letter, John uses that expression. My little children. John loved these people. These things I write to you that you may not sin. You know, John's not saying you're not going to sin. He's been saying, you don't have to sin. You don't have to. Do y'all realize that? You don't have to sin. Now, when you were lost, and you were a a child of the devil, and you were in shackles to the devil, you couldn't help it. He said, do this, and you did it. Do that, and you did it. But you're free. Do you understand? You don't have to sin. (laughs) But John, is (laughs) he's... He's saying there that you may not sin, but he's basically saying you, you don't have to sin. But look what he says right on the heels of that. And if anyone sins. Okay. Now, the, 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 the tense of the verb and how it's used grammatically would almost say this literally. Uh, if anyone sins and you will. It's almost a given. He says, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, in Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25, He says, therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He ever lives to make intercession for them. Do you understand that every minute of every day, the Lord Jesus at the right hand of God the Father is interceding on your behalf, on my behalf. We have an advocate. Oh sure, the devil is still doing his thing. He's the accuser. But Jesus is in the business of acquitting. Every time Satan brings up one of your sins and my sins that I've confessed and you've confessed and repented of and he brings it up to God to disqualify us Every time he accuses us, Jesus acquits us. We have an advocate who can stand before the Father and show him nail-scarred hands and say the price has been paid. But on this side of eternity, we have an advocate. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he will send another Helper He's talking to his disciples. He says, when I ascend to heaven and I'm gone, I'm praying to the Father. He's going to send another helper. And let me tell you something. This helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will be with you. He will live in you. So listen, you're not alone. When you're in that tempting situation and when you stumble and fall in sin, let me tell you something. You are not alone. You've got a Savior who loved you enough to die for you at the right hand of God the Father interceding on your behalf. You've got the Holy Spirit in your heart convicting you to help you get back on the course. He'll point you to the Word of God and he'll be saying, confess, confess, confess. Our Lord is able to intercede for us because he has earned that right to intercede. Look what John says. He says in verse 2, and we'll close with this. And he himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Our intercessor, our advocate, he is also the propitiation, the theological term that simply says that the great and just wrath of God that was kindled up against you and me as sinners. And we deserved it. We deserved hell. We deserved eternal damnation. We deserved the eternal wrath of God. But Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, gave His life on that cross. He stepped in between us and the wrath of God. And when He hung on that cross 2,000 years ago, He hung there for me. He hung there for you. And when he cried out in great agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You heard the agonizing weight of your sins come crashing down upon his precious, sinless shoulders. And he absorbed every sin that you have ever committed and will commit. And paid the price for it. And because of that, when God looks at you and He looks at me, He looks through the blood of His Son. And all He sees is righteousness. So, how Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, even when we sin, little children, even when we sin, God has already paved the way back into fellowship with him. It's through the blood of his son, Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus. And all we have to do is confess our sins, repent of our sins, and God has got his arms wide open and says, come on back into the fold. Aren't you glad? Sin is serious business. Sin is serious business for the Christian. it's serious business for the church. And to ignore it and rationalize it and deny it could be disastrous. But when we deal with the sin in the way that God tells us to deal with it, we walk in fellowship. We walk in the fellowship of the light, of the love of Christ. Praise the Lord. Oh, what a Savior.